Hi folks, Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned on every single show. You'll be an official sponsor of the Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, although I hope you'll become a member and support the show financially. You can also subscribe using iTunes or an RSS reader, and all those links are at thejazzsession.com. Hey, here's something cool. On on or about, I think, the 17th of March, uh, the Jazz Session passed 1 million downloads, which is crazy. And uh, thank you very much to everybody who uh, helped make that possible. It's very, very exciting. And uh, as I said a couple seconds ago, the only thing that could make it better would be if you would translate your emotional or philosophical support for the show into uh, financial support for the show, because that is what's going to keep the Jazz Session going for another million downloads and another 250 episodes. Uh, This is the 250th, I think. So please do that. You can find out how at thejazzsession.com slash join. And uh, it's been a while since I thanked the people who have become members, and I'm not sure where I left off. So to avoid missing anybody, I'm just going to thank everybody. It'll just take a second. And here they are, the monthly members, Amy Servini, Robert Devins, David Galea, Lance Harris, Richard Kamens, Jason Linnell, Sonia Lagalbo, Rebecca Martin, Rob Oxaby, Leo Raphael, Felix Ruther, Steve Stricker, Ted Vieira, and Brian Zoll. And the yearly members, uh, an anonymous member, thank you, Anne Braithwaite, Anthony Brown, Jeffrey Hessler, Terry Hinty, Anthony McGee, Matt Marowitz, Raindance Farms, Martine Erbach, and Dan Wilcox. And at the half-note level, uh, a yearly member, Carlos Ibanez. So thanks to all those people for making the show possible. My guest today is Fred Hirsch. He's got a new CD called Alone at the Vanguard, and uh, it is just what it sounds like, solo piano performance recorded live during Fred's week at the Village Vanguard. He's had an amazing couple of years full of uh, highs and lows, uh, real extremes, and I think uh, you're going to be fascinated by the story he has to tell on the show today. I've also got two autographed copies of this record that Fred was kind enough to sign when I was there for me, and uh, they can be yours if you are one of the first two people to send an email to contest at thejazzsession.com with Fred in the subject line. That's contest at thejazzsession.com, and just put Fred in the subject line. From that album, this is uh, the opening track. It's called In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning.
My guest is the pianist and composer Fred Hirsch. He has uh, two new projects out. One is a CD called Alone at the Vanguard, and another is a multimedia project called My Coma Dreams. And uh, Fred, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Maybe we can start with Alone at the Vanguard. I know that this is the second time you've done an entire week of solo piano at the Vanguard. I've never done anything like that. It sounds incredibly challenging to me. Is it? Is it challenging to fill all that space? Um, I do a lot of solo concerts, but I think to play a whole week, two shows a night, you know, uh, in a space that's not a concert hall I and mean, it's not highly reverberant, you don't get a lot back. Um, it has a very specific acoustic, um, which is great. Uh, especially drums sound amazing in there. Even what I would consider to be second-rate drummers sound great in there. It's just very favorable room for, you know, a trio. It's probably the best place to play that kind of music in the world. Um, the way I'm, I was the first person to play a week of solo there. That was about four or five years ago. And it happened really by accident. I was booked with my trio of Drew Gress and Nasheed Waits. And Drew called me around 5 o'clock, said he was stuck in California. He didn't think he was going to get back by 9. Uh, and then I called John Hebert, uh, another fine bassist, who is now in my current working trio. Uh, we recorded a CD called Whirl last year with J Eric McPherson. That's kind of the working band right now. And uh, <clears throat> so I called John, and he was also in California. So then I called them both back and I said, you know, whoever gets here first gets the second set. Uh, and I gave them each their cell numbers and so they could coordinate. And sure o'clock, nine o'clock came and nobody was there. So uh, just as Lorraine Gordon, the owner, was walking into the club, I was getting onto the bandstand to play a solo set. And uh, so there was no discussion and uh, I played the set, and the reaction was very, very positive. And I think, you know, it sort of put Lorraine in mind that, you know, maybe this was possible. And then that spring, I released a live solo CD uh, called Live in Amsterdam uh, from the BIM House, which is a great club. This was actually from the old BIM House before they moved. And they'd just gotten a beautiful nine-foot Steinway, I was at the end of a 10-concert solo tour, so I kind of really let it rip. And at the end of the night, the engineer just handed me the CDs and said, here, take them. And uh, it turned out to be one of those kind of accidental records, of which I've made several, <laughs> four or five anyway, uh, not intending to be a record, but they just happened to be recorded. So that was coming out in the spring, and I persuaded Lorraine to give me a week solo to coordinate with the release of the CD. And it really turned into quite the event. Uh, there was a lot of media. It was fairly sold out every set. And, um, you know, in the past couple of years, I've approached the idea with her of doing another week. And she said, no, let's just leave it at that one time. It was so special. But uh, then finally, uh, after, you know, in the interim doing, you know, trio, trio, quintet, trio, trio, you know, with different people... <laughs> I said, look, you know, it's, I feel it's this time, and I'd like to record this one. So we recorded every night, uh, 12 sets, six nights, and the CD 
basically, well, it is the final set of the final night. It's the 11 p.m. on Sunday set, start to finish. And uh, um, I know there'll be a volume two in a year or two. And in that case, I'll go back and cherry pick what I think is the best of the rest of it and kind of construct a set. But there's something organic about this set, the intensity of the audience, uh, their quiet, the focus, the fact that it was the last set of the week. You, you kind of leave it on the floor, you know. Uh, I think it was, it just sort of worked for me. So I decided that this is what I wanted to present. It strikes me that uh, one of the challenges of that much solo music is that you have only your own internal reserves to draw on as opposed to the interplay you might have uh, with your trio. How is there any particular technique, even just mental preparation that you use to kind of spark that fire each night to get yourself in the right place to play? Yeah, I mean, you know, instead of reacting to other musicians, I'm, I'm reacting to different things. Uh, first of all, I'm reacting to the audience. Uh, and feeling them in a different way because it's so intimate, just me and them. Uh, I also am reacting, believe it or not, between the left and right hands. I try to surprise one hand with what the other one is doing. Um, always I'm very involved in whatever tune I'm playing. You know, I'm always, you know, reacting to that material, to where it puts me whether it's something of mine or something of Monk's or a standard, you know, I choose tunes for reasons. And so, you know, I have a connection there. Um, that being said, it certainly is a challenge um, to, you know, keep it interesting. During the week, there were some tunes that I just, you know, pulled up out of thin air, like Memories of You, which is on this disc I've played memories of you in eons you know but it just sort of seemed like okay let's do that and there were a number of other tunes during the week that I just played once that I had not thought about programming I just thought oh okay this would be fun so I just kind of did it with no expectation and who knows those may be some of the tracks that end up on the second volume but uh you know to to surprise yourself you know is it's tricky. You have to, there is a mental thing with it. And I don't go in unprepared. I mean, I have a particular way into a piece. Um, the opening tune is in the wee small hours. And I knew that I wanted to use kind of trills. That was just, I just had that to go on. And I wanted to float the melody over this very, you know, uh, shimmery kind of texture. Uh, it was not worked out but it was a starting point. 
Um, sometimes I'll do a tune where I don't play the melody until the end. I just start, uh, start improvising. So, you know, I do have specific ways in, but once I'm in, it can go a lot of different directions. I think, you know, there's a, a fine balance. Uh, I've heard a lot of solo pianists, including some very wonderful ones, uh, that for me sounds like they've kind of worked it out. It's sort of like they're presenting it. Um, I think, you know, uh, you know, I'd rather personally hear Earl Father Hines play solo than R. Tatum because he was the consummate risk taker. You know, uh, I find Bill Evans' solo pian piano playing very kind of stilted and very worked out. You know, whether it was or not, I don't know. I'm not, I couldn't, I'm not in his brain. So I don't know how much of that was fresh, but it just sounds like it was kind of, you know, more or less planned out or worked out. And, you know, I think jazz needs to have some danger or it's not really jazz. You know, I don't, I don't want to go to a performance and have something presented to me. I mean, I can stay home and listen to a CD, you know, or go out and hear some other kind of music. I want to feel like what's happening on the bandstand is happening only at that moment, you know, uniquely, you know, that doesn't mean you have to reinvent the wheel every night, but I want to feel like, you know, people are going for it. And certainly when I play, you know, I go for it. And sometimes I don't always make it, you know, there are a few, you know, flubs here and there on the record where I just didn't get to the the note that I wanted to in the right place or my finger slipped or, you know, and, you know, I'm, I've been doing this long enough uh, that I don't feel like I have anything to prove. And sometimes perfect takes, you know, quote, perfect takes, they sacrifice some of the, the you know, go for it attitude that you might have in something that maybe has a flaw. How does that element of danger factor in for your more uh, arranged or, or through composed, for lack of a better word, works like I'm thinking, of, for example, Leaves of Grass, which is one of my favorite of your records. How do you incorporate that element of this is happening right now for the first time when you perform more complex um, work? Well, Leaves of Grass, you know, is a particular, was a particular kind of piece um, that I've not written before, uh, really, or since, in that, to me, the main focus was the words. And, you know, Whitman is an interesting poet. Uh, there's no conventional rhyme or meter. But there's internal rhythm if you kind of dig at it. And so the orchestration, for the most part, was fairly transparent in order to let the voices be heard. You know, I had two singers, Kate McGarry and Kurt Elling, who have great diction, you know, which is highly important. That piece took me about eight or nine months to decide what poems or parts of poems and in what order I was going to do them. Then I wrote the music in about and orchestrated it in about a month. But my subconscious was probably working on it during the time that I was, you know, making sort of the libretto to the piece. Um, there are certainly solo moments, 
that sound like jazz. There's group improvisation. There's some free improvisation for the female voice. Uh, the uh, Kurtz part is largely written, although, you know, he interpreted it in his own way. You know, at certain places, places I said, Kurt, you know, I like what you're doing, but I really want you to be specific about this. I, you know, I'm very, this is, I need you to sing these notes in this rhythm. Um, but I wanted him to make it his own and inhabit the part. So, you know, that was a more tightly constructed piece, certainly, um, than uh, any other large uh, project that I'd done simply because I, you know, some poetry is so beautiful and so musical by itself that music doesn't add anything. If anything, it makes it worse. I've heard so many, like what we would call, for lack of a better term, you know, 20th century art songs, poetry settings, where I felt like I just lost the poem. You know, it didn't help the poem. You know, and my idea was, you know, Whitman was, uh, you know, his 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 poetry sounds very improvisatory, and he gets into these kind of tumblings of words, and um, that attracted me as an improviser. But also, what attracted me was his philosophy, um, which is fairly in line with my own, being a sort of a kind of a Buddhist, you know, about you know, appreciating the moment, love of nature, love of fellow man, uh, you know, being who you are, not apologizing for it, um, you know, expressing emotion. These are all things that I value. So I was able to use his words to express much better than I could um, some of these uh, uh, feelings and ideals. If I can go back uh, for a minute to Alone at the Vanguard, I wanted to ask about, uh, I think my favorite transition on the album is from the first tune of the set in the wee small hours into uh, your composition, which is my favorite of all your compositions, Down Home, uh, which is, first of all, the performance of Down Home is 
ridiculous. It's just such pure joy. I've listened to it on repeat about a million times. But uh, but that transition is very surprising for me. Uh, and I so I wonder, was this the result of a set list at the end of In the Wee Small Hours? Did you just feel, I think this is what I'll play next? How, how did that work in the set? That was definitely a spontaneous call. Of course, they were in, you know, as in terms of key relationships, they're as far away as you can get. Right. You know, they're a tritone away. The Wee Small Hours is in D-flat, which is, you know, kind of the classic jazz ballad key, body and soul, lush life, etc., etc. You know, G is bright. Uh, of course, Bill Frizzell is a guitarist, so guitarists love to play in G and E and all those open string sort of keys. Um, but I felt like, you know, the Wee Small Hours established a certain mood. You know, it was very intense but you know uh, uh, so very delicate and I just felt like okay it's time to like you know get into a groove and just rip something off and that tune is always fun to play I mean it's a fairly you know it's not a simple tune but it's it's catchy it's a catchy tune it's uh, always enjoyable I've played it in many different configurations you know, with quintets, with my pocket orchestra as a duo, as a solo piece. And, uh, you know, it, it, it always seems to work. And, you know, the crowd, everybody likes it, you know. And, and I just felt like, okay, uh, it's sort of risky starting a set with a ballad. Now let's, like, you know, have some fun and lay something in there. So I think it came, as I recall, fairly spontaneously. I don't really have a set list. Sure. It also struck me, uh, similarly to the way often, uh, you know, for example, in a, a Shakespeare play might open with a single person speaking and uh, drawing you in, kind of in a, in a moment of stillness or, or quiet, and then something else begins, something that's different in tone. This kind of felt the same way to me, where in the wee small hours, you know, at the end of that, the crowd is completely uh, settled in the moment and present in that space, and then you're kind of free to to almost do whatever after. Maybe that's just my own Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, something that maybe a lot of young musicians don't understand, something I learned from, you know, trial and error and also working with great vocalists, you know, that that there is an art to being a performer. And, you know, I knew at the end of, in the wee small hours, like, I had them. I could play anything, but I had them. So... Once you have them, then then it's the responsibility of the artist to like kind of plan a menu. Okay, you've invited people to this dinner party. 
they're there, they're focused. You know, now, you know, you have to spontaneously kind of create some menu, which involves contrast of keys and tempos. And, you know, you wouldn't have a buffet with all white foods, you know, pasta and potatoes and rice, you know. You'd have salads, you have, you know, lots of other kinds of uh, foods available and desserts and everything else. So, uh, you know, to how to kind of weave a spell. And the Vanguard is a place where, you know, uh, because of my history there and uh, as a leader and as a sideman so often in the 80s particularly, uh, with Joe Henderson, a number of other people, you know, I sort of understand how it works in there, you know, and, you know, uh, I've never played some of the other clubs in town. The only other club that I play at with any regularity is the Jazz Standard, uh, because to me, the Vanguard and the Jazz Standards are the clubs that I like to go to. You know, they have the best vibe. You know, I like the programming. Both of them have really good pianos. You know, uh, you know, so I don't know if how what I do would go off in some of the other venues. Maybe the larger venues would expect more flash mm. or expect more something. But I know that, you know, what I do is really well suited for uh, the vanguard and the standard that I that I can kind of deliver uh, what I want to deliver. Uh, without uh, anybody, you know, telling me what to play or who to play with or how to play it or, you know, I mean, I you feel like kind of it's my living room and I kind of own it. Uh, I want to talk now, if we can, about the, the other project that's coming up and debuting in May, and that's my Coma Dreams. Can you uh, describe a little bit what the project is like and, and maybe tell folks a bit about the story of how it came to be? Yeah, um, the story uh, uh, just, you know, as briefly as I can it really began in the fall of 2007. Uh, I was very busy. I had toured Japan. I'd had a rather brutal trio tour in Europe. Um, I've been dealing with HIV AIDS for more than 25 years. I take a tremendous amount of medication. I've been hospitalized at various times for various side effects and other things related to that uh, condition. And in the fall of 2007, by the time I got home after Thanksgiving in December, I mean, I was whipped. I was way underweight. I was not eating. I was not good. And the decision was made about mid-December to give me sort of a two-week drug holiday from my antiretroviral medicines. With the idea that, okay, maybe the appetite would come back. For instance, I didn't have, uh, I had a condition called hypostemia, which means you don't salivate. Mm. If you don't salivate, you really don't want to eat. You know, and you certainly can't eat a sandwich. Things become too dry to get down. So you can't get enough calories in. So uh, I went off, and by New Year's Eve day, the 31st, I was admitted to St. Vincent's Hospital in, a, in an advanced state of AIDS-related dementia, which basically the virus had attacked my brain. And I was truly and completely psychotic. I was in a semi-coma in the hospital for about 10 days, and then when I came home, it was like two months of 
of you know total paranoia delusional psychotic you know my partner scott was just heroic in how he dealt with it because i was really difficult and around march of 2008 that uh, you know the anti-psychotic drugs that i was taking plus two new uh, antiretrovirals had uh, improved my clinical health related to my hiv condition and also the antipsychotics had kind of brought me back to, you know, some semblance of normal. And I started eating again. I was gaining weight. I was writing music. I did some significant concerts. Uh, so it was kind of this little honeymoon. Then early June, after coming back from a trip in California, I started to feel off again. And uh, around the 5th, 6th, 7th of June of 2008, I started spiking some fevers. Uh, my doctor was on vacation. We we talked with his uh, uh, associate who was covering for him. He said, "Well, okay, we're going to put him on these antibiotics. If it doesn't look better, we're going to, you know, have a chest X-ray because they were concerned about pneumonia." Uh, on Tuesday and then Monday, uh, I started spiking fevers again. Uh, June 10th, and you know. The idea of a cool bath just sort of appealed to me. I thought, okay, maybe this will help. So I got in the bathtub, and I could not get out physically. I could not get out. And uh, Scott and I went immediately to the hospital, and they put a blood oxygen sensor on my finger. And normally it's 98 to 100 is normal. Mine was below 70, which is like you're lucky to be alive level. And I was in septic shock. My kidneys had shut down. All my other organs were failing. Immediate triage. They stuck a, stuck a tube in my neck, rolled me away. And uh, I was uh, suffering strange fevers, infections, secondary infections. And basically, they induced coma because they had to you know, get my whole system kind of rebuilt and chased down all these other things that were happening to me. And I was in a coma for a full two months. Um, and during that time, I was uh, strapped to my bed. Eventually, I had a tracheotomy. The tube was pulled out. Unfortunately, the fact that they, you know, where they put the tube in and how long they left it in meant that my right vocal cord is now permanently paralyzed. So for months, I couldn't really talk. I could only whisper. And then I had a corrective surgery in my throat to put my vocal cords closer together uh, so that now I have a voice. Um, I was strapped to my bed. I was on methadone. I mean, you name it, I, I went through it. I came out, and, uh, you know, it takes some time to come out of a coma. You don't just wake up and say hello, you know. And, uh, you know, entered a month of five weeks of intense physical rehab and swallow therapy. Um, I was able to eat or drink anything at all uh, for eight months. Uh, everything went through my stomach through a tube because they were, because the vocal cords were open and I lost the muscles uh, to swallow food safely. They were concerned that liquid would go down into my lungs. I'd get pneumonia again, and then we're back where we started. 
So that was probably one of the most difficult demoralizing parts of the experience of just not, I mean, you know, food is such an important part of our lives, not just because it tastes good, but, you know, everything is like, you know, let's meet for coffee. You want to go out for dinner? What's for dinner? You know, let's cook breakfast. I mean, it's just a social thing. And I was excluded, really. Um, but when I started to come out of the fog, I remembered a series of dreams, eight or nine of them, some of them terrifying, some of them humorous, some of them very surreal, some kind of lyrical. Um, and they stayed with me very precisely, colors, smells, sounds, textures, actions. Um, I don't usually remember my dreams, so the fact that I remembered these, A, and that B, they stayed with me for weeks and weeks, was significant. So as soon as I, I acquired at least some basic motor skills, I certainly was nowhere near playing a piano, I typed them into my computer and just, you know, said, okay, I'm going to write these down. And uh, after I began to recover and start playing again and, you know, things, you know, I became ambulatory and then eventually in February of 09, I was able to eat again. That was a big marker. Um, I thought, you know, I really should do something with these dreams, you know, uh, write a suite of music, something. And then I thought, you know, the stories of these dreams are so amazing that I want the audience to know what they are. And I don't want them to read them in a program book. So I thought, okay, well, let's use some animation. And then I, when I thought that through, I realized that that would be sort of like a silent movie. You know, you'd sort of see the words, and then you'd hear the music, and then you'd see the words, and hear the music, and get predictable. So I enlisted the help of my uh, friend Herschel Garfine, who's a composer, librettist, director, and I gave him this dream material, and he devised this, I think, rather remarkable scenario uh, where uh, we're, we're using an instrumentation of 11. It's a mixed ensemble of 11 instruments and one person who acts and sings. And uh, what he does is uh, he lays out for the audience the medical reality, you know, what was happening to me, the timeline. He also plays a number of different characters. Sometimes he talks as me. Sometimes he talks as my partner, Scott. Uh, and various other characters. Uh, there's one long song that he sings. Uh, one of the dreams is just a song, uh, which is sort of the centerpiece of the of the uh, whole evening. And um, so you kind of get this uh, parallel reality kind of thing going on. You know, uh, Michael's you know more concerned with what's going on in real time not exclusively. And the music is, you know, I expressed each dream in a very different musical language according to what the dream evoked in me. And um, we have a very elaborate visual element of the, of the story, which is some animation uh, and computer uh, modified animation, computer generated uh, video images. Um, uh, that uh, on a huge projection screen uh, behind the musicians. So, you know, you'll be drawn into 
kind of the world of my brain uh, and kind of it will amplify the experience so it's not just going to be a, a music piece it's really a you know uh, there's much more theatrical element and visual element than you would find in say Leaves of Grass which can be done in a, any nice concert hall with a minimum of rehearsal this needs you know a day or two of tech and you know lighting and you know and Herschel is directing and it's you know all very complicated uh, but I think it's what this particular piece needs. You know, we're not just doing it to say, you know, gee whiz, we, we need to do something flashy. Uh, it's I think it's essential to the vision of what this piece is about. And so people will get the stories in different ways. Sometimes they'll be acted out or projected or indicated or sung. It's not going to be predictable. It'll be about a 60, 70 minute piece and... Uh, uh, it will premiere in Montclair, New Jersey. It was a commission from the Castor Theater at Montclair State. A couple performances on May 7th and 8th. And then uh, in the fall, it will be in San Francisco. And uh, also next season at Duke University and University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And, you know, we're hoping uh, more places will want to present it. Um, and concurrent with this, uh, uh, two women are doing a feature biography of me and my life and my music and uh, they're using this coma dream piece kind of as a centerpiece because it draws together my music my health uh, my activism you know all these kinds of things are uh, part of this piece so they're filming rehearsals and tech rehearsals and we'll film the uh, performances uh, it's possible that the there will be a DVD release of the piece if all goes well visually and musically. So, you know, there's really a great deal of activity happening right now to try to, you know, sprint to the finish to get all these elements to come together um, for these performances. Was it cathartic or emotionally or psychologically useful for you to be able to to capture these dreams and this incredibly traumatic and challenging part of your life in this way? 
Well, much like Leaves of Grass, um, you know, Herschel and I, you know, batted around the libretto for some number of months. And then in August of last year, I went to the McDowell Colony, which is an artist colony up in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I've been there, I guess, seven times in the last 10 years. And I really just walked in with the script, and that was it, blank slate. And I, really in about three or four weeks, I, I wrote the material for each dream. I mean, it wasn't orchestrated. I mean, I had ideas about how I would orchestrate it, but... Um, I just lived with each dream, with each section, and I did not mu limit myself to musical language. I mean, you know, uh, some of it sounds jazz-like, you know, uh, uh, other parts sound, uh, kind of like my own personal musical language that you might hear in Leaves of Grass. It's not jazz, but it's not not jazz, and... It's not really Americana, and it's not really contemporary classical music. It's just sort of me. Uh, and uh, when I was actually doing writing the 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 material, um, it was somewhat emotional, uh, not wrenching, but you know, I was revisiting a time. I was visiting the the manifestation, let's say, of a very difficult time. Um, that's what I was kind of left with. Uh, just in the fall in Barcelona in October and then in late February in Boston, uh, I was invited to speak uh, two medical conferences. The one in Barcelona was the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and the one in Boston was the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections, which is the big AIDS research conference, also deals with hep C. And uh, in both cases, I gave a speech at the opening plenary of the Congress and just basically told them what I had been through. I mean, the one in Barcelona was more oriented toward my ICU experience, and of course, every doctor there knows about comas. I mean, that's what they deal with every day. And my speech in Boston was more about, you know, my history with AIDS and medications and side effects and, you know, uh, various uh, other things related to that condition. Of course, both of them talked about my coma and this piece. And then uh, after I spoke, I played a concert. Uh, in Barcelona, a full concert in the evening in Boston. As soon as I got off the mic, I sat down at the piano and played. And it was very, very powerful. Um, I think for the ICU doctors, I mean, I was basically living testimony that, you know, what they do works, you know, that it's somewhat miraculous that I can talk about this and then I'm creating a work of art out of it and then I'm actually playing the piano. And I think for the the researchers in Boston, especially those who don't see patients, you know, I was able to again put a face on the disease and remind them of why they're doing the work they're doing. And I in both cases I got dozens of emails, you know, from doctors, researchers, hospital people, you know, uh, just saying how, you know, meaningful it was, you know, and 
uh, you know, standing ovations and people just really responding. So I think, you know, my career as an activist is still ongoing. And uh, I think, you know, without being uh, egotistical about it, I think part of the the knockout punch of this Coma Dreams piece is that, you know, I am there right. <laughs> playing. It's not a memorial to right. Fred Hirsch. I, <laughs> I went through this. Moreover, I've created all this music, and there I am. You know, and that's, I think that's going to be very powerful. Uh, but in both cases, going back to what you were saying before, in both speeches, toward the end of the speech, you know, when I started to thank the ICU doctors or thank the researchers and uh, doctors who work with uh, HIV AIDS, um, you know, I kind of started to lose it. I got emotional, you know, because there I am sort of reading this chronicle of all this horrible stuff. You know, I mean, really horrible indignities and scary things and and just kind of reading it out loud like that, you know, and then realizing, wow, that was me, you know. Uh, it was very heavy uh, for me to do that. And I think it was, you know, important, you know, to talk about it. I've always believed, you know, about my sexual orientation, about, you know, my disease. It's like there's a big price to pay for staying in a closet. And especially if I could do some good, I think I have. I mean, I think I've made it safer for a lot of jazz musicians to come out and be gay. Uh, I think I've made it safer for a lot of people to disclose their status, you know, with without as much fear. Um, if I can be some kind of reasonably good example, um, you know, in a way, it's not a job that I asked for. But I feel like that's part of kind of why I'm here. Um, there's a, you know, there's a reason that I've been sort of called to do this. So, uh, you know, I fully plan to continue that. And, uh, you know, as, you know, as a jazz musician, I mean, you know, I don't really have anything to prove at this point. I think this Vanguard album is, you know, really just pure Fred. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to out slick anybody or, out, you know, play any faster or louder than any of the young whiz kids who are out there who can have, you know, ridiculous facility. You know, I mean, I'm just I'm just playing music in the very personal way that I play music, you know, moving parts and counterpoint and using tone and, you know, uh, melody and lyricism and rhythm in my own way. I think after going through this, coming out of it, you know, I'm more and more determined to, you know, to be myself. I mean, I mean, I've always been that way, but this is, if I ever needed any evidence of why this is important, I've been given ample evidence. And, uh, you know, of course, the great irony is the more you are yourself, the more people dig it or respond to it um i mean i've always had a a good career uh starting at 21 in new york you know i was working with the heavyweights and but in terms of really you know people looking at me and saying wow this guy you know 
has really mastered some stuff and moreover innovated some stuff. I think that's now coming back to me. And whether it happens at 30 or 55, it, you know, in a way it doesn't matter. I'm not, I've let go of any competitiveness that I had and I feel like I'm just going to do my thing. And there seems to be an audience for it. And uh, I plan to sort of, you know, keep doing it uh, kind of in a way with a vengeance because I have a second chance to do that. And uh, thank God my health is good. My energy is great. My tour schedule and uh, project schedule is full and interesting. I also teach. I believe in giving back uh, to young musicians, the things that were passed on to me in the oral tradition. You know, I try to, you know, uh, be as helpful as I can in that way. Um, there's only a limited amount of it that I can do, but I do teach at a couple of institutions at Juilliard, at New England Conservatory. Um, New England is where I went to school. I firmly believe that it's the best music school in the country, and I'm very happy to be associated with it. And in fact, just a few days ago, Jason Moran and I did a two-piano concert at Jordan Hall, at NEC, which is one of the great concert halls in the United States, and a faculty concert, and it was a complete blast. And we had a great time, and people would think, Fred Hirsch and Jason Rand, how weird is that? And it was absolutely not weird at all. You know, we have a lot in common, uh, even though our technical styles are different, and in some ways our aesthetic is different. It was an actually very uh, potent combination. So getting to do things like that, uh, you know, makes me very happy, you know, to continue to take risks, try other things, expand my palette of things that I haven't done yet. You know, uh, I'm writing a big piece for uh, a large string section and my trio that will premiere in Poland in the fall. And I've written some things with orchestra, but not like a large piece. And, uh, you know, it... Once again, it's an opportunity to do, to do things that, uh, you know, coma dreams is not something that I ever set out to do. It just sort of manifested itself and I decided to run with it. So I'm definitely, you know, doing what I can. I try not to overwork myself. And if I'm touring, I need some days off. And, you know, I'm not going to, you know, run myself into the ground again uh, like I did uh, in 07. I'm very wary of that. But I'm, you know, strong and eating well, good weight and good good numbers. And, and I think, you know, I'm more prepared uh, to take that on now. My guest is Fred Hirsch. He has a new CD called Alone at the Vanguard, as well as a new multimedia project called My Coma Dreams. It's been such a pleasure uh, to talk to you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Well, thanks. Thanks for the support. And uh, thank you out there for, for listening and uh, supporting the music. It's really important to have people on the other end of it.
That's music from pianist Fred Hirsch and his CD Alone at the Vanguard. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, but please become a member and help keep the show coming to you for uh, years and years to come. Thanks to the Respect Sextet, they are performing a free show, which is very, very cool, at the BAM Cafe in Brooklyn. So if you are in the New York area and you want to check out some wonderful free music, uh, please go see the Respect Sextet at BAM. That is happening on March 26th, which is uh, just at the end of this week on Saturday, March 26th, 2011 at 9 p.m. And again, that's at the BAM Cafe in Brooklyn. Now, full details are at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo and who tweets at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.